I need to pause before we jump into what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about success today. Uh, we're going to talk about whether or not you are a success today. And we're going to talk about how you can change the scorecard that defines for you whether or not you are a success today. Uh, before we jump into that, I need to pause and thank some people that you never see, but they make this experience uh, happen for you every week, and you're not even aware of it. I, last night, did a wedding, and invariably when I do a wedding someplace outside of uh, this room or a, a church building, uh, there's, uh, the, the bride and groom have hired a, a, uh, a DJ, and they've paid that, mon- that DJ a, a, some good money, and uh, I'll get there, and then they'll put a mic on me, kind of like, you know, one version of this, and usually it's not as nice of a mic as, as this, uh, lower quality, and uh, I get up there, and I, and I promise I've done scores of weddings, and invariably, uh, the DJ that the couple has paid a ton of money to, hundreds if not thousands of dollars, um, doesn't turn the mic on in time, and then anyway, you know, it's like that, uh, there's a like that happens in the middle of someone's beautiful day that they paid hundreds of dollars for. And I had that happen again last night, and the bride and groom got married, but it reminded me again of people who volunteer their time, who sit up in that booth, who do this with such an incredible level of excellence that you never even notice those things. So can we pause and tell them thank you? Yeah. Uh, Before we talk about success, I need to pause because this has been a tough week for our country and uh, just make a comment about some of the things that have happened this week. Yesterday, uh, I I wasn't aware of it until later in the day, uh, but you may know that Saturday for Jewish people is the Sabbath day. It's the day that they worship. It's the day that they rest. And yesterday, a gunman walked into a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue in Pittsburgh, and shot 11 people dead. They found out that the person who did that was an anti-Semitic person who hated Jewish people because of their religion, uh, was a very vitriolic person, a very angry person, a, very, um, a person who'd gone down a very dark path. And uh, I just need you to know, I need you to know two things, okay? Number one, that's an act of pure evil, hating someone because they have a different set of beliefs than you is always wrong. It's always on the side of evil. If you know the story of the Bible, the story of the Bible is about God's chosen people, the the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and Christianity itself comes out of the story of Judaism, and Jesus was a Jew, and we say that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises to the Jewish people. God still has a place in his heart for the Jewish people, and so when someone commits an act like of, of cowardice and evil like that, we always condemn it. It's wrong. And I hope and pray, like I hope you hope and pray, that justice is done for this man and for this situation. So I need you to hear that. Second thing, you may do what I did and go, oh my word, what if that happened here? We have a safety team. Uh, they're volunteers. You don't even know they're here. And they've gone through all kinds of training. We've gone through all kinds of terrible scenarios that I never want to have happen. Um, And they're at a moment's notice ready to make sure that you're safe here. I just want want you to know that. Um, But I I thought it was really important that we just say something about that. 
um, so that we can think about it and then that we can pray about it. And I, I felt like it would be really important if we just paused, prayed for those families, and then pray for that man. Would you pause and do that with me? God, we don't understand senseless tragedy. It makes no sense. It doesn't compute. We hate it. It's so ugly. It's so evil. It's so um, horrific. We can't even get our minds around why someone would do something like that. And so um, in the way that only you can, uh, pray that you would be present to those families who are now uh, trying to move on and pick up the pieces from a horrific tragedy that will forever change their families. I pray for that congregation as they uh, attempt to move on, as they attempt to deal with this tragedy. And then, God, we know because of the cross and the resurrection that there's nothing beyond your ability to redeem it. And so we pray for this man. We pray that he would discover the error of his ways and that he would, in the language of the Scriptures, he would repent, he'd change his mind, We'd find out there's a God of grace and mercy who can redeem even a person like him. And God, we do ask for justice in this situation. And, and um, we ask for that to be done in, in our realm of things, our human realm of paying for the act that he's done. But we ask that his heart would be redeemed and that he would see that you stand ready to forgive even someone like him. And so we ask for that right now in your name. We pray this in your name. And everybody who was hoping for that said, Amen. Well, we're going to talk about success for the next several weeks before we jump into Christmas. And uh, here's, here's my experience. My experience has been that for all of us, just underneath the surface uh, is, a, is operating an idea or a reality that we wonder uh, if we are a success. Now, I, th- I think that changes based on the season of life that we're in. If you're retired, your definition might be different than if you're uh, a teenager or in your 20s. But all of us are trying right under the surface. We want to know, am I doing okay? Uh, Am I a success? Now, if you're going to be a success in life, I hope you would go and and listen to the words and the advice of someone who actually is a success We have a tendency as human beings to listen to the wrong people uh, when we're trying to get advice for things in our life. Um, I'm a a quasi-handy guy. I've learned on my own, um, you know, how to operate a power saw and miter saw and repair things and, you know, basic household stuff. You know, I can get it done. I'm I'm your guy. Now, it's going to take me four times as long and cost twice as much, but I'm your guy. And... um, I'm going to get it done, and, and uh, so I learned all that, and, and I thought that that translated to all areas of, of uh, repair, and so one day I had a, uh, an issue with my car, and I called Matt, Matt, uh, Matt Tulash is a, he's an usher in the first service, friend of mine, and he's a, he's a mechanic, and I'm like, hey Matt, what do I need to do, and he told me what I need to do, and I'm like, ah, oh, I got this, I got this, no problem, so I take the part off, I put the new part on, and I put the, I put the, sc- put the bolt back in, and I couldn't quite get it to twist. Now, in, in home world, when you're trying to connect like two pieces of wood and it won't go, you know what you do? You go to the garage, you get the impact driver, and you that thing together, right? And you make, and you feel really good when you did it. And I assume that's what you do in an engine too, right? You do that. So I got out the, I got out the rest. Some of you, I don't know. I, a car has four wheels and you put gas in it. That's about all I know, okay? So I go and I get the ratchet and I'm and it's not going. I put a pipe extension on it. I'm, I mean, I'm like back here. I was like, 
oh, I'm going to make this. And I felt it release. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's awesome. And I broke it. <laughs> so I went to Matt. I'm like, Matt, what did I do wrong? He's like, okay. And he had to undo the whole mess that I made because I went to the wrong person for advice on how to do that. Me. Not a success at dealing with engines. Well, we do that in life sometimes. We, we go to the wrong people. So if, you're gonna, if you want to be a success in life, listen to what someone successful did and copy them. So we're going to listen to uh, the, the story of someone who was a success, the Apostle Paul, maybe one of the most successful people in human history. Uh, and so I'm going to invite you to stand with me, if you would. It's our practice to stand out of respect for God's Word. And I'm going to read a passage from the book of Acts in, um, in the New Testament. And this is uh, the Apostle Paul, and he's saying goodbye to some Christians that he's spent a lot of time with and invested a lot of his energy and time, helped them uh, find Jesus, and now they're following Jesus, and he's saying goodbye, and this is what... He has to say, I'll read it aloud. You can follow along on the screen. Uh, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Again, he's saying saying his blessing as he leaves. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself who said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And then when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed and listened to what happened. And we'll talk about this at the very end of the message. We'll come back to this. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. They're on the the beach together saying their goodbyes. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, whether you know it or not, you walk around and I walk around with a scorecard uh, about whether or not we're doing okay, whether or not we're a success. You may, you may have never articulated it, uh, you may have never actually written it down, but you and I walk around. We have a, a scorecard that we kind of keep in our back pocket that we pull out and we go, did I do okay on that? Am I, uh, am I a success? And what I'm hoping happens over the course of this series is that you get a new scorecard that you put in your back pocket that you pull out and that you use for the rest of your life to define whether or not you are a success. So let me ask you that very basic question. Uh, Are you a success? Uh, What I mean by that is we're always measuring things, right? We're always wanting to know. When we ask the question, am I a success? We're measuring ourselves compared to somebody else. Remember when you were a kid and if you had a brother or sister and your parents would put you up or your mom or dad would put you against the door frame and then they would mark where you were and then your brother or sister would get there and if you were a little taller than them, you were like, yes. And if you were a little less than them, you'd punch them and be mad that you weren't as, you know, because we've been doing this from the beginning, measuring ourselves. Like, am I, am, how am I doing? Uh, am I a, do I measure up? Uh, am I a success or not? Now, I think there's uh, several ways that we just kind of time-worn ways that we go about trying to measure whether or not we're a success. I think one of the the most obvious ones is how much money you have. Uh, We even have ways we talk about that. We say, you know, oh, man, he really made it. What I mean is he really made a lot of money. (laughs) And if you made a lot of money, even when you're on TV and you see someone, a very successful fill-in-the-blank, what we know that means is they made a lot of money. 
Uh, one of the other time-worn ways we use to describe whether or not we're a success is the job that we have or the role that we have in our job. And if you're uh, a white-collar person, and we have white-collar folks in our church, then if you uh, get moved up in your company and you get the corner office and you get the title and you're, see, what you're doing when, you, when that happens is you're like, oh, I'm, see, I'm, I'm getting taller in this organization. Look how great I am. <laughs> Uh, if you're a blue-collar person, it's not that much different. We have a lot of blue-collar folks in our church, too, and I love that about our church with both ends of that spectrum. Uh, it's, you, you want respect, and you want authority, and you want seniority, and you want more say, and you want, when you say things, people to jump. And you want, In the end, for white-collar, blue-collar, whatever it is, in the end, when you have a, a different role, what you're saying is, you know, I, I got more say, and I got more money. Those are the time-worn ways that we go about defining whether or not we're actually a success. Now, I think there's some, some kind of new ways that we're defining whether or not we're a success. Uh, the, the, the first one I'll describe to you might have been around for a while, but I think it's, I think it's kind of new, and, and it's this, is that we feel like we're a success when we're winning, when our side is winning, that we're on the right side of history. Meaning, those losers who aren't like my people are wrong, because we see it as a win-lose proposition when we're measuring ourselves, right? Ah, uh, we win. Our side wins. Uh, another one that's, uh, that's really, really new, it's new in, in human history, we don't yet know uh, the implications of it, how it will affect the next generation, is the whole reality of social media. And you got a social media platform, you got it on Facebook, or on Instagram, or Snapchat, or Twitter, those are probably the biggest ones. Uh, and, and the reality is, is that you go somewhere and you take a picture of your pumpkin donuts at the county line orchard and you post them on Instagram. Like, these are the greatest donuts in the world. You put some hashtag. And then what do you do? Do you leave your phone and go, wasn't it nice that I shared my picture with the world? Oh, I'm never going to see if they know anything. About no. What do you do? You go back like five minutes later. How many likes did I get? How many people, ooh, ooh, 14 people like that. They must really like it when I eat donuts. That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, we, I remember the day uh, when, you, when you took a picture of something, you went click, and then you clicked about 13 times, and then you went to Walmart, and you went, here's my camera. <laughs> and you waited about four days, and then came back in a little envelope, the pictures, and there'd be the one that was all black. We had your finger over the thing. You're like, oh, throw that one away. And if you wanted to share what you just went through, you had to go through this whole long process. In fact, your parents had a picture of you, and if you wanted to see pictures of you when you were a baby, you would pull out the book with the six pictures of you as a baby. Now, if they want to see a picture of your baby, it's like this. Oh, look, look at these 78,000 pictures I took of my baby. Do you know what I mean? And so now, we have this whole new reality where people like what we do. What are we doing? We're measuring ourselves again, aren't we? Oh, you know, my friend got 78 likes, and I got 112 likes. <laughs> uh, they say that Instagram, Instagram's the, the platform uh, that is most popular among teenagers right now, um, but they, they did a study, and they said um, people who are on Instagram more than any other platform are the most unhappy. The reason is for exactly that. You take a picture, and then you compare yourself 
against that person. And so you see all these people having all these experiences, doing all these things, and you look at your life and it seems so boring and so plain, and you're measuring yourself against them and you're not quite measuring up. And, and because we, some of us are old enough to remember when you didn't have that, there's a whole generation of students now, they don't remember what it's like, they don't know what it's like to take a picture and have to wait four days. They take the picture and post it and immediately get feedback or comments about how dumb that is. And they're actually concerned that this might be a mental health crisis for the next generation because we've somehow made that one of our measures of success. Um, success is, is it's fleeting. I want to give you some basic, uh, some basic realities of success. If you've got notes there, you can, you can fill in these blanks as we go through them. But, but isn't this what success feels like? It feels like something that's always floating away. When I was a kid and we would jump in, uh, go swimming in the public pool, um, I would jump off. I got to where I could jump off the high dive, and I would, the way I did it is I would tell myself that I'm going to count to three, and then I'm just going to do it. And I learned that actually helped me do things I was afraid of for the rest of my life. Um, but I would count to three, and I would jump, and, I would, and then I would swim. And I didn't want to leave the deep end, because when you finally made it into the deep end as a kid, that meant that you were growing up. And I didn't want to leave the deep end, so I would swim to that rope. You know that rope that separated the shallow and the deep? And do you remember the little floaty things that held the rope up? And if you were like me, what you would do is you would, while the lifeguard wasn't looking, is you would try and climb up on one of those little floaty things. And you know what would always happen? You'd go, whoa, yeah, and it'd slip away, right? It was always, success is like that. It's always, ah, I almost had it. And, but here's the first basic reality of success is that if you don't anchor down your definition of success, it will always be just out of your grasp. I think we've got that on the screen, guys. If you don't anchor down your definition of success, it will always be just out of your grasp. Now, what makes that even more challenging is that every season of life that we go through has almost a different definition of success. So how do we know if we're ever there? There's a guy named Bob Beal. He's a consultant. He's written a bunch of books, and he consults with families and businesses and organizations and churches and, and done it for a long, long time. And he said that every decade of life has a, a different measure of success. And I'll just give them to you. They all start with an S, and I'll just give them to you really quick, and you can kind of gauge where you are uh, based on your season of life. He says when you're a teenager, the thing that you're trying to figure out is, who am I, you know? You're trying to figure out yourself. Um, when you become, uh, when you get into your 20s, then you're just trying to survive. All of a sudden, you're thrust into the adult world, and adulting is hard, and uh, you're trying to figure out if you can even make it work. Can you pay bills? Can you hold a job down? Uh, do people like you? Do they want to pay you for what you do? Are you... Are you all of that? And then when you get in your 30s, you're trying to figure out how to be a success, how to make money, what it even means to be a success. And then, then you get into your 40s, and it's about uh, being significant. You've had the 20s and your 30s, and you're trying to then start asking, am I even doing the right things? And then there's struggle that goes along with it at the same time because usually your kids are, are growing or they're, they're getting into the teenage years and then your parents might start fading and you're trying to hold all the pieces together in your 40s and the significance and struggle that comes with the 40s. And then, then in your 50s, 50s, you're trying to start hitting your stride and what does that even mean? How do I, how do I keep going? And then in your 60s, you're being strategic and uh, then in your 70s, you're thinking about succession, what's next. In the 80s, it gets slippery. And then if you make it to the 90s, it's all about sleep. <laughs> Can I stay awake for this? <laughs> but, but the definition of success is always it's like just out of our grasp. 
And then it doesn't help that we live in a culture of success. If we were from a traditional culture like, say, Thailand, at your funeral, what they would ask about you is, did he honor his family? What we ask is, was he a success? Was she a success? But now, there's a really important question to ask right here in the middle of us trying to measure everything. And the question is this, what does God think is a success? A very famous story uh, from the life of Jesus that he told in Matthew chapter 25. He tells the story of this, uh, this man who owns this estate, and he's going to leave for a year and take care of some business in another place. And so he takes three of his uh, employees and uh, to one of them, he gives uh, one talent. Now, this is a talent was a, a, a monetary measure, not like I gave you the ability to play the trumpet, <laughs> that kind of talent. Uh, and, and he gives one talent to one, he gives two talents to another, and, and five to the other. So you could think about it like $100,000, $200,000, a million dollars, that kind of thing, right? Uh, and he comes back, and he goes to the man who had five talents, and, and the man said, you know, I, I invested this, I, I started some businesses, and I turned the five into ten. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, the, he goes to the one with two, and the two says, well, I invested this, and I put this in the bank and gained interest, and I turned the two into four. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And then the one says, oh, you're a hard man, and so I was afraid. And so I took that one, I dug a hole in the ground, and I buried it, and I kept it safe the whole time. I didn't take any risks. And, um, and so here you go. I got to, gave it back to you. Here you go. And he's waiting for the same well done. And what the, what the master of the house says, oh, you wicked servant. The, the question we're asking through the series is, how do you know that you're doing the things that will cause God to say about your life, well done, good and faithful servant? Uh, this week, uh, in the middle of all the stuff that transpired, uh, one of my heroes died. His name was Eugene Peterson and you may not know who Eugene Peterson is. Eugene Peterson was a pastor in a suburb of Baltimore, Maryland for, I think, 35 or so years. And then after that, he, um, he taught some students about being pastors. And, and then he retired. And, and then this last, I think, Tuesday, um, he died. Uh, when Eugene Peterson was a pastor, his, his people said, you know, we, we really struggle with the Bible and understanding the Bible. It's hard to read, and, and man, we, we, just, we just could understand it better. That would really help. And so he said, you know what, I, I'm going to go and I'm going to take the book of Galatians in the New Testament. I'm going to, uh, in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, it was written in street language, and we don't really read it that way, and so I'm going to write it in the street language. I'm going to do my best. So he, he gave it to them, and they loved it. They're like, this is, it made it come alive. Wow, we didn't know all this, and uh, could you do more? And so he translated some more, and then he had the whole New Testament, and then that got published because people liked it so much. And then someone went and said, hey, would you, um, would you do that for the Old Testament? He took years and put the Old Testament together, and, and if you've ever read the message translation of the Bible, you've read the work of Eugene Peterson, just a simple pastor that didn't care about celebrity or fame. And, and when he died on Tuesday, he wrote a ton of books, too, about pastoring. Massively influenced me and my, my leadership and understanding of what it means to be a pastor. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty positive that on Tuesday when he died, he heard the words, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Um, when, I, when I go play golf, uh, I have a scorecard. 
And um, I, I pull that scorecard out, and that scorecard tells me what to measure. It tells me to measure the number of strokes. But um, this is how we think about success. We think that the scorecard's just handed to us, and we can't change the things that we measure, right? Because we're just measuring ourselves against all this stuff. Like, I'm this, I'm that, huh? And, and I want to suggest to you that we could change what we measure, because here's the second basic reality of success. Success depends on who defines it. And I want to give you a game-changing thought in the middle of this conversation and tell you something that might seem surprising to you, because this is a scale right here. Um, we're all measuring success, like, how am I doing? How am I doing? Uh, God does not even play that game. What God does is God weighs things. He doesn't measure them. So here's the, th- here's the third basic reality of uh, success, is that we measure while God weighs we measure while God weighs, and then when we measure, we compare, and while God weighs, he deepens. I'll explain what I mean by that, but here's what we're doing when we're measuring ourselves against someone else. We're comparing ourselves, and so what happens is we develop a scarcity mindset. There's not enough to go around. Oh, my gosh. How many of you had a conversation this week about, you know, when I win the Powerball? What you're saying is, I'm going to get it all. Those losers don't get a thing. <laughs> There's not enough to go around. It's all going to be yours, right? And, and we're always thinking about what we can see, but God's not doing that. He's, he's weighing things and he's deepening them because he knows there's enough. And so if you, if you delve into that, what happens is an, an abundance mindset, and God knows there's more than enough. And it's about the person that you're becoming, which brings about the growth in the first place. Now, I'm not plucking this idea of weighing things out of thin air. This is actually a a concept in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. And um, it works its way all the way to the New Testament. Um, But it's from a a Hebrew word. The Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word is kavod. Could you say that to your neighbor? Kavod. you got to say it like that. And this is what it means. It means weight or substance or heaviness or reputation or depth now it often gets translated by the word the english word glory but it means weight so there are some places in the old testament uh famously in isaiah chapter 6 where the prophet isaiah is in the presence of god and he hears in the the presence of god he hears holy 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 is the lord almighty the whole earth is full of his kavod The whole earth is full of his weight. The whole earth is full of his substance. The whole earth is full of his heaviness. The whole earth is full of his depth. Then it makes sense when you hear the next part. Like this is this heavy thing in the room. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, the weight, the heaviness, the depth, the credibility, the reputation of the Lord Almighty. The psalmist says it in Psalm 19.1. He says, the whole earth is full of the kavod of God, the weight, the substance, the heaviness. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal the weight, the heaviness, the depth, the substance, the gravitas, the, the, the depth of God and who God is. So you, when you go to the ocean... Or when you go to Lake Michigan and you look and you go, oh, it's so huge. I feel so small. God put that into his creation so that you would feel in comparison to how small you are, the weight of who he is. 
When you go to the mountains and you go, oh, they're so amazing. Look how tall they are. You've ever hiked up into the mountains and realized just your little teeny little dot and this huge thing. You're meant to feel small. God put that in his creation so you would see that he's how heavy he is and how weighty he is and how important he is in comparison to you and I. That's all there so, we, uh, so that we can understand what God's trying to say to us about how weighty he is. Because see, this is what we do. Since we're measuring and not weighing, we're, we're like, I could, I could put a bunch of these together and I could tie them together and reach all the way to the ceiling. And it'd be taller than any ruler you've got. I win. Guess what happens when I put that on the scale? It weighs almost nothing. And we spend so much of our time building towers of toothpicks and they weigh nothing. Nothing. God is weighing things. So does your life have that same gravity? Does it have that same depth? And so this is what we're doing in this series is we're saying if you could have God's scorecard, it would be the one that you would then use to weigh your days. You put that in your back pocket and go, okay, I'm not measuring, I'm weighing. So I want to give you one. This is a whole introduction to the whole series, and then I'm going to give you just the very first thing. There's going to be three things in this series, and then next week we'll spend a lot more time on the next thing, and then the third week the next thing as well. Um, but here's, here's a word from the scriptures that God is weighing, um, and it's this word. You know this word. The word is family. Family. And I want to give you some, some questions that you can ask yourself about family that help you know if you're um, if you're weighing the right things, and here's the first question, and we'll, you can put it in your notes. Uh, do the people who know me best respect me most? Uh, anyone who has m- m- my, my job as a, as a pastor and stands on a stage like this is in kind of a pre- precarious position um, because people assume, because I stand up and I say words and I talk about the Bible, that I must be this perfect guy. I have people all the time, like, you, you have a hotline to the big guy. And I'm like, no, you have the same line. I'm not the guy. I'm the guy pointing people to the guy with the answers. I'm not the guy with the answers. But, but you can so easily believe the press because you're standing in front of people. And they think that you're all that in a bag of chips. It could be so, and I, I know people who, um, who do this, and their family is a train wreck. I, I don't want it to be the case that people like me as a pastor, and then my kids go, well, yeah, but behind curtains, my dad was a jerk. Uh, I don't want it to be that my wife goes, uh, yeah, you cared about other people, you didn't really care about me. Listen, we can all fall prey to this. I know people who make so much money and their kids hate them. I'm not telling you that I even get this right. I, I, it, the temptations, it's, I, I, screw, I screw it up sometimes, but I try to be honest about it and go, hey, I really screwed up. Sorry. I want the people who know me the best to respect me the most. Uh, the next question is this, is my definition of family as big as Jesus' definition? Because we think, you know, oh, you're talking about my, you know, my kids, my wife, my, 
yeah, I am talking about that, but Jesus expanded the definition of family. And at one point in Mark chapter 3, Jesus was teaching and some people said, hey, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brother, they're out there and they want to talk to you. And Jesus looked around. It's like, listen, whoever does the will of my father, that's my mother and my brother. The kingdom of God is now my family. That's why if you say, my, my family I come from is a wreck. Well, guess what? You get to belong to the church, which is God's family. And you get to experience, hopefully, a family that's learning how to be family in the way family is supposed to be experienced. And that's why in January we're, we're launching life groups so you can be part of a family. Expand your definition of family. And then this is the last one, and we're going to take communion. Is who will weep when I'm gone? When the Apostle Paul is on the beach there in Acts chapter 20, this passage, and um, he's spent all this time with these people, he's invested his life in them, and uh, the scene that we read there in Acts chapter 20 is the fact that he's made such an investment in them he, in that day, there's not Facebook, there's not Twitter, there's not email, there's no phones. When he gets on that ship, he goes, he's going to Rome, he's going to be crucified, he's going to be killed, beheaded in Rome, and they know it. They know this is the last time they're going to see him, and they weep. They weep. It's a pretty powerful question to ask, who will weep when I'm gone? Some of you that... Um, we're here last week, you heard Tim talk about his transition he's making, and, and uh, last Saturday night we met with the band and talked to them about it, and, and the band cried. And many of us have been crying. And what I want you to hear is, and I told them, I said, you know what, you know what that means? That means that Tim's a success. In the things that God is weighing, Tim is a success. Um, there's a saying, there's a saying, uh, and it goes like this, when you were born, um, you cried and everybody was happy. Uh, live so that when you die, everybody cries and you are happy. <laughs> Listen, I'm, I'm just trying to tell you, this is what God is weighing. And I want you to put it on your scorecard because you know what? It will change. When you change the scorecard, it changes how you act. It changes what you choose. Changes how you spend your time and how you spend your money. If you have the wrong scorecard, you'll do all those things in the wrong direction. And I want you to have everything that God has for you. So we're going to end um, by receiving uh, these elements of communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, the Eucharist, there are many ways it gets described. But this is just a, a, a remembrance of the time that Jesus was with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. He was having a meal with them, like families do, around a table. And all of his disciples were people that he chose, that he invited into his family. They were from very different backgrounds, very different experiences, very different outlooks. And Jesus brought them all together by inviting them into his family. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread while he was with them at that meal and he said, this, is, this bread represents my body. He knew the cross was next that would be broken for you. And he took a cup and he lifted it up and he said, and this represents my blood that will be shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And what we're going to do is this is, a, this is a, a, a Christian way of representing the family meal. And what we believe is that at any point, anyone who is outside the family can come in and have a seat at the table because what 
because of what Jesus Christ, the sinless Lamb of God, who offered himself as a sacrifice for your sins and mine on the cross, did, anyone can walk in and pull up a seat at the table and say, I'm home. <laughs> I now belong to the family of God. And you may have been a Christian for a long time. I hope you'll come down and take the elements and remember that Christ died for you and be thankful and walk out of here saying, God, I need to put a family on my scorecard. Or you may come down and for the first time say, you know what, I would like to be a part of the family of God. And you are welcome to walk right down here, take these elements, and this is the first meal you share with God's family as one of his beloved sons or daughters. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to stand as I do that. And we'll receive this meal together, all right? God, thank you that you invite us into your family. No conditions, no pre-qualifications, no list of expectations. You let the people in who need it and know they need it. And we're in because of your kindness and your love and your grace. We're not in because we're good people or we stay away from bad people. We're in because you love us. So thank you for this invitation to be part of your family, something that you're weighing. And so I pray for us this week as we uh, attempt to do this in the way that we do as um, broken human beings trying to make family more important making that the important thing on our scorecard. And we're going to need your help because we don't really know how to do this right. So we need help. So we pray this in your name. All God's people said, amen.